Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I want you to stop what you're doing, unless you're driving and go sign up for our newsletter. We have the link in the show notes, and you need to get on it now because it is full of information. Our Lit newsletter comes out once a week, and it has everything that's happening in the Lit community, including classes, workshops, retreats, free classes, on and on. Plus, we have blog with recipes, articles, and every week we have a PT corner written by one of the many PTs in our Lit community. So we can help you with knee pain, text neck issues, pelvic floor discomfort, so much more. So join our newsletter, go to that link in the show notes. I'm Laura Hyman, and welcome to Redefining Movement, a lit podcast designed to investigate all aspects of movement from my background in physical therapy and neuroscience. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter movement patterns and compassion for ourselves and others. So together we can live our most uplifted lives, benefiting all beings. Welcome to Friday with Friends. Today, I'm so excited to have my friend, Brett Larkin, back on the podcast. She's been on here before. I've been on hers, and I had her here today to talk about her new book. I'm just blown away with Brett because not only is she so successful with her online yoga classes and teacher training, she's an entrepreneur, she's a busy mom of two, and she became an author. Her book is called Yoga Life, Habits, Poses, and Breathwork to Channel Joy Amidst the Chaos. What we talk about today is how to make yoga truly more accessible for the busy person, for the person who's overwhelmed and can't just go to a yoga class or doesn't feel like they can roll out their mat for 60 minutes. She goes through her soulmate poses, which you'll be delighted to hear more about, and how she decided to write this book during a really challenging time in her own life. I hope you feel compelled to buy this book, buy it for a friend, and enjoy my friend, Brett Larkin, today. Welcome, Brett, my dear friend. So good to have you back on the podcast and spend time with you. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here, as always. Love nerding out with you. I know. I just love hanging out and chatting like we were beforehand because I it's a small space and a really intimate space of female founders, entrepreneurs. And I feel like we have extra compassion for each other. And also like we're cheering for each other. You know, I just feel like it's so important to do that. And I really feel that with you. So thank you. The feelings mutual since our last chit chat, I know, I think we ended record and then 
you told me something that stuck with me, which was that your career is going to have all these different phases. And you told me, you know, because I can't do much in person right now. And you were like, that's just a phase. Yeah, You were like, when I had little kids, that was me too. Like, And it was just so reassuring. And I just wanted to say, I really appreciate that from you because it stayed in my mind. And I've mentioned it to other female entrepreneurs since referencing you. So I just thought that was such a great tip. I know. I think it's good to like pull back the veil and really tell people like how it is. Like I look at you and other women who have younger kids and I just have such admiration because when my kids were little, I, you know, yeah, I revved up accordingly. So I think it's really important to not present to the world like that we can be these super women defined as having it all and doing it all because ultimately the women are going to forsake themselves and we should never have to do that. And we should just prioritize what is important in this phase. And it's going to be different. What I loved about your comment too, is it really put me back in the driver's seat instead of being like, oh, I can't do this right now. It's more like, no, I'm designing my life. Like that's the benefit of being an entrepreneur. And I'm choosing not to do or focus on in person right now because I want to be home with my kids. So I think it's very empowering that reframe. And life is complicated, which is why we need yoga and movement to fit into the chaos, right? Which is what I just wrote about. (laughs) Exactly. That leads us right in because I feel like all of your messaging, and I know in this book too, is really about empowerment and giving tools to help women and men. But, you know, most of our audience is women and women need to empower each other. So let's just go right into it. Why did you write this book? You just wanted to put out all this wisdom and there must have been other things because it's not an easy endeavor to just write a book. 100%. I was very resistant to it. I really have to credit my husband and my team who really pushed me and they said, you need to do this. And I think what happened to me is, and this is how the first chapter opens. I talk about the most difficult year of my life, which was when I was simultaneously a first-time mom. So I had just given birth, which was, you know, it's not emphasized enough as the rite of passage that it is. I mean, how you go from a woman to a mother and just all that's involved in that beyond just the birth process, like how much shifts, how little time for yourself you have and probably won't have for many years. At the same time, my business was kind of blowing up that year. So I didn't know any of these things were going to coincide. Let's just be clear. So I was first time mom to a newborn, business blowing up, and my father was dying of cancer at the same time. And I had made the choice to move him into my home, out of nursing care and into my home because I wanted to be with him for the final years, final months at that point. We didn't know. It was very confusing of his life. And I'm an only child and they're divorced and my father didn't remarry. So he really just had me and my husband. And what I found in that rock bottom year is that all the techniques that I had relied on, being able to go to a studio class, being able to go and teach a class, which was very fulfilling and rewarding in its own way, being able to do a 90-minute Kriya, being able to actually practice. I mean, before I had a child in this situation, I would often practice in the morning and at night. And it was like all of that was taken away from me in a heartbeat. It was like between fighting with the insurance companies for my dad's medication, trying to keep my newborn from crawling off the couch, trying to handle the business growth. It was like I just felt like a fraud and I felt like I was drowning because here I was like telling everyone in my email newsletters and on YouTube the importance of the consistency and you got to practice every day. And in my own life, it wasn't happening. It wasn't happening. And that's when I knew something had to change. 
something had to change. Like the way that yoga had been presented to me and was serving me up to that point wasn't working anymore. So I realized what had to change was the yoga itself. And so what I found, and feel free to interrupt me at any point, but what I found was that if I really dug deep and picked the right poses for my unique mind-body type, so I don't know how familiar your listeners are with Ayurveda, but we can go in there a little bit if you want and unpack it in a moment. But if I really picked what I call the soulmate postures, the poses that ushered me into my fullest, deepest breath, the fastest, that felt nourishing and also served to balance me, I could achieve in what used to take 90 minutes, like 20 minutes. But I had to really start becoming like the Project Runway contestant of my own (laughs) sequence. Like I couldn't follow along to someone else anymore. I had to design what worked for me. And part of what I was doing here, which felt very frightening to me at the time, is I was matching and mixing different yoga styles. So I was incorporating maybe kundalini breathwork and then shifting to vinyasa and then shifting to yin. And I remember that year staring at the ceiling thinking like, I'm going to get in trouble for this. The kundalini police are going to come for me, right? The ashtanga alignment people aren't going to like that I'm kind of moving intuitively. And it led me to just question all of yoga's rules. And that's when I really started turning to the history books and compiling a lot of the research that ends up in chapter two of the book which is that yoga was always meant to be personalized. And the story of how it came West is just so fascinating. I mean, you tell me what you want to dig into. I do want to get to that for sure. But I think what you've already just highlighted is going to just register and resonate with so many women in particular, mothers, caregivers. Culturally, we've been assigned to these roles more than men. And then you're doing that for your dad, which was, I know, from your heart and having lost my dad. You didn't even talk about like all the freaking emotions that accompany that and the hormones that accompany having a newborn. I mean, you could have really imploded. And at those times, it is interesting. You already had the tools. You know, there's a lot of people that don't have those tools. And you just thought, how can I actually use them in a practical way? And I find that many people, it's like an and or, and we're going to get into the and or of yoga. Like you're saying, like, you've got to do it this way or you've got to do it this way. And there's no kind of and mixing. But similarly with practicing, it's like, if I don't have time to do an hour long, I do nothing. Now, what I hear about so much is people aren't looking for the hour long. You know, they're looking for shorter time. Maybe it's 20 minutes here and 20 minutes there and 20 minutes here that adds up. But you are tapping into something that is really, that many I'm sure that are listening can relate to, which is don't just throw it all out when it feels like too much, personalize it. So let's go into the chapter two, like how was yoga from the very beginning of time supposed to be a personal practice? And what did we do in the West that messed that up and made everybody so indoctrinated to believe you got to do it exactly this way or you're doing it wrong? Yes. Okay. So we'll we'll get on the history train 100%. I just want to add to what you were saying is one of the key phrases I use in the book is yogic adaptability. I think the definition of an advanced practice is how good a mixologist are you to pick the exact poses, breathwork technique that serve as an antidote for you in the imperfect life moment you're in. 
To me, that's the definition of advanced. It has nothing to do with fancy postures or arm balances or anything like that. And I love what you said about how for most of us, it's all or nothing. And I say that in the book. I'm just like, most people, even hardcore yogis, probably even people in my community, your community, it's like they can do a class, but put them in like an airport with 10 minutes and a cold floor and no sticky mat. Like they probably won't do any yoga at all. They'll have no idea what to do. And I just want to also mention that the book has this thing I call yoga habits. So I'm helping you design this 20-minute ritual, but I'm also recognizing, and I'm going to be honest, like this is vulnerable for me to say, I have not done yoga today. So do before I hit record, I have a child who vomited all night. <laughs> I had a bunch of meetings this morning. I feel good, but my practice hasn't happened yet today. So what I'm going to do is sneak in yoga habits, which are all my off-the-mat practices, leveraging yogic wisdom that you can kind of insert. I think of it as like inserting some glitter throughout your day. So I just want to make it really clear that this book is also for people who know they can't even make it to the mat. And then I think we think, oh, we can't make it to the mat. I miss my practice. I'm bad at yoga. It's like yoga isn't a thing you do. It's a mindset that you inhabit. And if we can retrain ourselves and actually have habits we can practice to get us to that place, it's going to be so much more beneficial. So I just wanted to say that because I think you really hit the nail on the head here with this idea of how can we adapt. And I agree. It's not just the physical practice. The physical practice is the gateway in to develop these other things that you can summon when you don't have the time, space, whatever, physical ability to practice. It's many other things too. It's like, how are you feeling at home in your body and listening? 100%. And that's a great segue into some of the history that I share in the book and I'm happy to talk about here is that when we look back at yoga, it was primarily a spiritual practice meaning that the body was actually seen as an obstacle to overcome. It was like, oh, the pesky body, like it wants to have sex. It wants to eat, like it needs all these things. And so the ancient yogis were really focused on transcending the body. And that's why we saw most yogis were elderly men who once they were kind of done being the grandpa in their village, it was very common for them to go out and wander in the woods and become this wandering ascetic nomad in order to prepare for the next life. So we saw this elderly group of men doing yoga, and then it was also reserved for like the young priest boy equivalent of the times, like the young men who were training to be in like a religious role for their whole life. So when you look at these two groups of people, they're both male. They both also have no other job. Like their only job- I was going to say it was also a caste, right? Like, let's be honest, yes. like it was not available to everybody. Yeah. So they had ample time to do all eight limbs, for example. Like no one loves the yoga sutras more than I, but let me tell you, when I was in my rock bottom, the eight limbs were not helpful. I was like, I don't need an instruction manual on how to reach samadhi. Like I need a life raft. Like I'm drowning. I need to make it till bedtime. So when we look at what I would call like the householder yogi, which is more who we are now, we need very different tools. And that's not to say that Vedic wisdom can't be made highly relevant. And that's what I try to do in the book with the yoga habits. But I think we can get trapped in this framework. Okay, so let's go forward historically. We're looking at yoga as a way to transcend the pesky body, prepare for the next life, or to connect with God or universal consciousness in a religious rights setting. When did everything change? Well, there was one man, Krishnamacharya, who is the father of modern yoga. And in the late 19th century, 
so around 1871, I believe, he decided to reposition yoga. And it's really fascinating what he did. The Maharaja of Mysore at the time had hired him to open a yoga center, what's called an akara. It's like the pre-prototypal, the closest thing we have to like an ancient yoga studio. And he was having trouble getting people to come because right around this same time, 1870s, we see the Industrial Revolution happen. What happened to the Industrial Revolution? Well, people started to take an interest in their health and well-being. Instead of being out plowing and working farms, everyone was flocking to cities and the quality of life improved. Like, I think we got plumbing. Yay! Like, electricity. Yay! Like, all of these things happen around the same time. And it really got people interested. They had the bandwidth, really, to be interested in their physical health. I mean, if we think about it, like, a long time ago, we had to work out to survive and plow and farm and hunt. Being able to work out for like leisure is totally like a post-industrial revolution issue. So we see all these interesting things that used to be niche, like gymnastics or aerobics, kind of sweeping Europe in this fitness movement. And so what Krishnamacharya did, which was so fascinating, is he decided to reposition yoga from something that was just for the select few, like people trying to achieve this spiritual enlightenment to like transcending the body to say, you know what? Yoga is actually good for the body. It's good for the health and fitness of the body. And what he did is he blended yoga's core poses, which we see in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. There are not that many. There's literally like 30. It's very little compared to the modern yoga poses we see today. And he blended those poses with a lot of gymnastics, the fitness craze he saw sweeping Europe, and then he also blended it with Indian martial arts, which were really growing popular at the time. And this new yoga fusion that it's like, this is where it's like Chaturanga came into being, right? The more traditional fast-paced sun salutation. He completely repositioned yoga to be for everyone and as a tool for health and well-being. Some of your students, I know some of mine have, had the privilege of going to like a Mysore Astanga studio. And the way Krishnamacharya taught and the way... Mysore yoga works is that everyone is in the same room, but the teacher is giving poses to students as they are ready. So like if you and I are in the same room, we're practicing different things, Lara. Like we're completely in our own little world. And then the teacher is going around. And when he sees that you're ready to add on some poses, he'll teach those to you. So it's extremely individualized. What happened is Krishnamacharya had three star pupils. Desikachar, Patabi Joyce, and Iyengar. And these are the three men who ended up coming West and bringing yoga to the West. What's interesting is Krishnamacharya taught each of them very differently based on what he saw each of them struggling with as an individual. And also the time in their life that he was teaching them. Like he was teaching Joyce when Joyce was an incredibly fit young man with like incredible athletic prowess. So of course, his personalized regime looked like a lot of jump backs, like all the stuff that we see in Ashtanga yoga when he brought it over. Desikachar, his son, I believe, came to the West a little bit later, and he taught a more therapeutic approach to Desikachar. So then the yoga comes to the West. Now it's like the 1960s, the 1970s, and it gets enmeshed with the group fitness craze that was happening at the time. It comes over around Jane Fonda era. And I think just for ease of instruction, these kind of three core men that we had bring yoga over, they taught what was taught to them. And it made sense for them to open a yoga center and to transmit these teachings the same way that acrobatics or 
aerobics and step fitness and all the Jane Fonda stuff was happening. And that's how we kind of got yoga as a group fitness class, which is really interesting because when you look back, no one was ever meant to be doing the same postures at the same time, the same way, on the same breath cadence. All of that is really modern, like last 30 years. And I think this answers so many students' questions because for one person, breath of fire is invigorating and feels fabulous. For a different student, it can trigger a migraine and make them feel worse. And so many people think like, what's wrong with me, right? Like, why does this technique not work for me? Or why does it make me feel lightheaded or what? You know, and the reality is we can bring in the Ayurveda piece in a moment, but depending on who you are and the moment you're practicing in, a technique could be really beneficial or it could be detrimental. So the idea that everyone should be doing the same way, same thing, the same way, the same timing, it's just really actually kind of bizarre when you dig beneath the surface. Yeah. I think of it almost as like athletic teams, like somebody gets behind a team and they're like, this is the best team and we're going to, you know, whatever camp they get in. And really what has always surprised me is like this dogmatic approach to something that at its essence is supposed to be very welcoming and blending. I mean, that this whole blending, I remember, I'm sure that you've had some people maybe comment like when you're doing something that is a mixture, somehow you're not honoring the roots, but the roots actually came from this whole idea of borrowing from Japanese military practices and from acrobatics and everything evolves, right? Because we are evolving and our civilization today is so dramatically different with many more we're just assaulted with information and overload. You know, we're stimulated way beyond probably what we get in a day is what they might have gotten in five years in terms of there's just so much stimulation. So anyway, getting back to it, I'm curious about your thoughts. How in doing this research, did it help you feel more comfortable with this idea of, hey, we can create these soulmate yoga poses and they can be from different lineages? Or had you already been like that? I think it gave me a lot more confidence to start sharing and talking publicly about it because I was able to really, I mean, the book has a million footnotes. I was really able to support and see how this happened. At the same time, I'm not going to say this is something that's still, you know, I still think there's people and they might be listening and they're like, the Kundalini Kriyas cannot be altered. This is sacred. This is something that needs to be respected. I think everyone is going to have their unique approach and you need to find what works for you. I think in order for something to mass proliferate, which is sort of like what we're talking about, it does need to get stripped down in a way, right? Like if I want to teach everyone Ashtanga yoga, is it easier to do that, to just like write a manual that's like heel to arch alignment? And again, most of these poses were written for young men with young men's bodies in mind. I mean, what's fascinating to me is like heel to heel alignment, which we see in so many yoga poses. And I know you're going to back me up on this, doesn't work in a female body. Like our pelvis is anatomically wider and different. So I understand for like mass transmission why this needed to happen. But I think we're at a moment in time now where everyone knows what yoga is. I don't feel like I'm really needing to sell people on yoga anymore. They're just like, how can this work for me? How can I fit it in? We see personalized nutrition blowing up. Do you get these ads for like personalized shampoo? I haven't tried it, but I'm like, 
they hit me hard on Facebook. I'm like, if we have personalized shampoo, like we deserve personalized yoga. And so that's why I wrote the book. I was like, let's give people a framework to figure this out. And so let's talk about that. Like, how does someone come up with something personalized? You mentioned Ayurveda. Do you bring in the Ayurveda component into this? So what somebody might be needing if they need to feel uplifted or they need more like a grounded approach? How do you bring that in to tailor it to different individuals' constitutions, but also constitutions on a certain day, like today for you? Yes, it's complicated, right? So I've tried to streamline it as much as possible, but we're always changing and the type of day we're in is always changing, right? Like if today it's very gray where I am, that's affecting my energy. If you're a woman, you're literally changing every single day of your cycle, meaning that hormonally, like really no two days are that similar. So we have this changing variable of the environment around us. We have the changing variable of what we might need to do on a given day, right? So for example, even if I'm high vata, I might want to do some breath of fire or an energizing practice if I didn't sleep well and I have to go speak on stage in five minutes. It's like all the styles have value. All the techniques and tools have value. It's just, I mean, I know this is a weird analogy, but I know people go to bartending school to learn how to mixologize everything together. And that's, I think, what this book offers. The Ayurveda piece is critical because another thing that happened, and this is the way I describe it, when yoga came West is it got separated from its twin, right? Like yoga and Ayurveda, they're siblings. They go together. They were never meant to operate in isolation of each other. And somehow yoga came West and Ayurveda didn't. Everyone listening to this I would imagine is probably familiar with Ayurveda, but like the world at large, no. It is not mass proliferated the way acupuncture or some traditional Chinese medicine concepts have. I mean, it's still considered very weird. Most people at your family Thanksgiving table would probably be like, I or what, right? Like, (laughs) what is that? Well, I think it's because it's so dense. Like you can do a skim, skimming of it to understand it, which is really helpful as well. But I'm sure the actual... Ayurveda doctors and practitioners, it's a dent. So maybe explain to people who might not know what Ayurveda is, if you were just to give them, because I think you can just know a little bit about it and that can still be extremely helpful. 100%. So Ayurveda means life knowledge or life science. So it was really like Ayurveda was the study of life, which is surprising because I think sometimes people think that's what yoga is. And technically that's Ayurveda. So Ayurveda works under this model of individualized healthcare or medicine. And it starts with the framework that if you are in a state of balance, you are in a state of health. Once things get out of balance, that is when disease creeps in. And it works through the system of three doshas. And what's interesting about the word dosha is it actually means that which can cause problems if you look at literal translations, or it means like fault line. Why? Well, Because each of us is made up of three elements, vata, air, pitta, fire, kapha, earth. But your zone of genius is when these elements are at a certain percentage. So let's just to be simple, like 50% pitta, 25% vata, 25% kapha. That's kind of where your unique essence radiates the most effectively into the world and where you're moving through your karma most gracefully. Like It's kind of like your unique fingerprint in a way. So we all have all three elements, but I'm sure you can all call to mind right now someone who's maybe more pitta in your life. That's like that more kind of aggressive go-getter. They have an agenda. 
someone who's maybe more Vata. These are stereotypes, okay? So I'm just trying to paint broad strokes for people, but the Vata would be more creative, more artistic, a little more scatterbrained. And then the Kapha, which would be, you know, I think like elementary school teacher or someone who's doing something with their hands or in a very caring role. And there are body types that go with these three elements as well. So knowing this about yourself is really helpful. And and the first section of the book is kind of like a self-help book, (laughs) a yoga book, because here's the thing. You're going to be attracted to whatever your dominant element is. And your dominant element is the one that skews out of balance the most easily and the most often. So let's go back to that example of being 50% pitta, 25% vata, 25% kapha. Which do you think is going to skew out of balance most easily? The pitta, right? The 50%. So all of a sudden that ends up being like 70% and the other two shrink back even more. So this is why you know, someone who has high pitta, and that's very much me, I'm pitta vata primarily. You know the first yoga style I tried? I'll let you guess. Ashtanga. Nope, even worse. Oh, Bikram. Hot yoga, right? <laughs> yeah. Hot yoga. Because I was attracted to that. It felt familiar to me to be hot, to want to be in a puddle of sweat, to compete with other people in the mirror. Right. Like I literally described doing that in the book. Like I would just look at people in the mirror and just be like, how can I be better than them? And so it felt very normal to push myself like like that, but it wasn't bringing me into balance. So this is where we have to realize a lot of times the yoga styles, and I talk about styles, and then I talk even about how you approach a pose, like a lunge. The way we approach it is usually the way that feels familiar, plays to our strengths and what we like. It is not necessarily what we need. Like the pizza people need restorative. They need yin and they're the ones who are going to be most resistant to ever doing that. So how do we design around that? How do we weave that in? And there's a lot of tips in the book. A lot of it's about indulging in what you want for a little bit and then transitioning to what you need. But really having this heightened awareness of who you are. And then what's amazing is every yoga style and every yoga pose is designed to affect the elements within us. Like backbends increase vata, right? Forward folds increase kapha. Yin is a kapha in style, while ashtanga is more pitta, right? So I kind of help lay some broad strokes. And I have a disclaimer because I am not an Ayurvedic practitioner. It is something I would love to learn more about later in life. It is incredibly detailed, exactly as you said. You can go down a rabbit hole of diet and heartbeat and tongue texture and all of those things. But what I found is like to really drastically gain a ton of self-awareness and improve my practice in my life, I really just need to know in a given moment, do I need more earth, fire, or air in this moment? I can't agree more. I think I have looked at Ayurveda and even you know, did a very mini course that was so much more in depth than I wanted. And I look at it the same way. I kind of frame it like when you're out of balance, pitta goes towards anger. Kapha goes towards depression. These are, again, generalizations. And vata goes towards anxiety. So what are you feeling? And you need to bring in the thing. And I know for myself, I'm very pitta dominant. And I'm just chill, 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 chill till I'm not. And then I'm like, okay, what's out of balance? I just need to bring in more of that, like, grounded, slow things down. And it really does work. But it summons you just like, 
yoga and twin sister to observe yourself in action in real time. What you're describing is two of the yoga habits in the book, one being svadhyaya, self-awareness, which is like, you need to notice that you're angry, right? Like that's like step one. And then I translate tapas in a really unusual way, which I'm sure will be controversial to some people. But I talk about it as, obviously, it's that heat, that burning desire to evolve. The way I simplify it in the book is cultivate the opposite. Because Ayurveda is many ways, it's the science of opposites, right? If you have high earth, you need more air and fire. If you have high fire and air, sorry, you need more earth, right? But what you described was perfect. You'd cultivate the opposite of what you think. So if you're angry, I always think like water. Every time I'm angry or get impatient, I'm like, whoo, let's get in the shower. Let's get close to the ground. Like we've got to cool things off. I love snow sports. I was telling you how much I love to ski before we hit record. And as I reflected on my life more, it makes me literally cool down. Like being in nature and in the snow from someone who's so pitta like me, it's incredibly potently healing, like in a way that is really hard to describe. So this is where the yoga habits, it's like, this is stuff we can take beyond the confines of a six foot mat, right? This is a way you can really approach everything in your life. I love that. And it's also, yes, it's really emphasizing the off the mat part and then the welcoming of on the mat. And it doesn't have to look like what you might've been practicing before, a timetable, and even like a certain lineage. It's really making it customizable. So there are so many books that guide people in different ways. What was it that called you to write this particular book? Permission slip. I hear that a lot from students. They're like, I feel like you gave me this permission slip to, you know, insert the blank. And I think that's really important because so much of the yoga we've been handed down has not been adapted for women, let's be honest, has often been founded by people that we're now discovering were, what's the right word? Pretty horrible. Yes, thank you. Egomaniacs. (laughs) And... I would so much rather teach someone like how to build their own sequence because I think there's this fantasy that you need to take 200 hours of teacher training. And of course, Laura and I would both love if you guys would do that because we both offer training. But like you actually don't need that much to know the basics of how to shift your energy. Like some of these examples we just gave, a lot of this is really common sense. So I saw so many yoga books that were almost always about styles, like the book was pushing a style or the book was pushing a practice methodology or it's like six weeks to blah, blah, blah. And so that's what I felt was missing, like a book that really takes into account that you might not make it to the mat some days. Some days it might be only 10 minutes on the mat. And then how do you know what to prioritize in those 10 precious minutes by knowing yourself, the day you have in front of you and the state of the world, like what's going on. Because I feel like if we can give people that, that's how we really enroll people into yoga. Yes. And empower them because, you know, I have seen the people who have come to me and they've been like, oh, I've been taking yoga for 10 years, but I can never practice on my own. And I think, okay, that's fine because you like being led. But like, on the other hand, if you can't figure out how to just do five or 10 minutes and you've had 10 years of prep, like there is a missing component. And it must be that, like what you said, you're giving people the permission slip. One is that you don't have to rely on somebody telling you what to do. It's really 
fine tuning your antenna. Like, what is it that I need? What is it that I can do? And even if I only have 10 minutes, 10 minutes is going to have a big input and change for my nervous system, which who knows that 10 minutes might turn into 20 minutes. Like sometimes you'll take that extra time, but you just need to get the needle moving. Speaking of moving, you said, you know, like many people come to yoga for flexibility. We know that. In fact, that's probably what we both have heard the most. Like, I don't do yoga because I'm not flexible or I want to be more flexible. But you have a chapter that you said about stretching that less is more. Do you find that thread line again, like the permission slip and the listening to your body? And how do you guide people to like, it's not about going to your deepest range. You're not going to get a sticker or anything. <laughs> Stickers. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes. The less is more is a theme that's weaved throughout the whole book. I wouldn't be propagating this if I haven't tested it and felt it in my own body for six or seven years now, which is that a 20-minute personalized practice can be just as potent, if not more, than a 90-minute group class that's generic. Like if you get really good at personalizing, because I've, I've experienced it. When it comes to stretching in particular, I think people see these images of yoga and they think the goal is to be able to do backbends on top of each other or the splits. And you could probably speak better to this than I can, but we are all unique energetically. And then I think so much of your brilliance is like, we're all very unique anatomically. The way your femur fits into your acetabulum, like that is going to affect, you might never be able to sit on the floor with your knees like touching the floor. And that's just your skeleton. And there's nothing wrong with that. So it's really important to make sure the pose is not the goal. It's the presence inside the pose that's the goal. And what I love about the stretching, oh my God, you'd love it. There's this little box that's like, how not to be a toe grabber or something that I wrote because what I noticed watching students over the years is like, I know they're not doing it consciously, but, and it happens to me too. If I go to a group class, you look around and you're seeing how far everyone is in that forward bend and you push yourself. You think the goal is to reach your toes because you want to be like a little good yogi and get that gold star from your teacher, that pat on the head. And what I invite in the stretching section is that less is more. We want a healthy range of flexibility. There's actually a lot of injuries in yoga. And again, you could probably speak to this better than I can, but lots of injuries from overstretching. And then what's interesting about the stretch segment of any sequence is that we've slowed down. We're quieter. We're holding the poses for longer. So the brain has less, we're giving the brain less dog food about like, okay, we're going to go here next, step my foot here. We're going to do this on the other side, chaturanga, you know, all of that's gone. And you're really just left with yourself. And that means often that however you are feeling or whatever's going on behind what's going on, kind of like the bubbles in a champagne glass, like those are going to bubble to the surface, which is why I've personally seen more tears in the stretching portion of class, like a pigeon pose or a forward fold than any other section. Because you don't have the adult pacifiers like your phone and your email to distract you. And you don't have the fancy choreography of the asana moving quickly or maybe telling you to do fancy things to distract you. And so you're really just left with yourself. And that can be deeply unsettling. So the stretch chapter, I talk a lot about how can you use this time of like profound introspection, know that it could be triggering for you. And, you know, different ways to breathe. 
So it's literally like someone might look at me and be like, she's not touching your toes at all. And it looks like I'm doing nothing, but I'm actually processing within me really like deep emotions or things that in my day-to-day life, I haven't had an opportunity to feel. Oh, I love that. It's that stillness that can really, like you said, bring the bubbles up. And then the invitation is to be in it, even if it's a little uncomfortable, because it's better to process and feel and move that stuff than to choke it back down. And by the way, I did write an article called Touching Your Toes is Overrated. (laughs) This is why we're best friends. I know. I'm like, this is so nonsense that, you know, that like we got to do that because it's everybody's different. Some people will never touch their toes and it's fine. And I think we're both basically cheering for every person to feel validated in where they are and know that, yes, you can change and adapt and improve your connection to yourself without changing how that looks to the outside world in terms of a pose or a practice. I'm so excited for people to utilize your book because I think it's going to help. It brings humility into yoga, which really at its essence summons that. But you're in the Western world. It has in some ways ventured away from that. Thank you. Yes. I heard this book comes with 30 videos that are companions to the. Tell us about that. That's a wonderful offering. Yes. The book does describe poses. Once we get into the sequence builder section of the book, so the first section of the book, the first half is sort of like a self-help book and we're kind of decoding Ayurveda and figuring out what your personality patterns are. And hopefully there's some fun, deep work there for people. But then the second part of the book is like a build a bear, right? It's okay. Let's figure out what your soulmate poses are. And I share mine as a jumping off point for people. And so it was very interesting to write the tutorials for these, which I've done because I have yoga teacher training manuals. So I've written tutorials, but it just felt like for someone new, they'd want to see it, they'd want to practice it alongside a video and try all the different options that I'm giving out on how to personalize it. So yeah. So if you buy the book, there's QR codes throughout the book and they'll open up companion videos. Same for the breathing techniques. You know, it's nice to just be kind of talked through those. So those are all included as well. Okay. What an undertaking. I know. And so I just want to ask, like, how long did this take to write? When you finished it, did you feel like you were literally having another child? Yes. The book was like a three-year process and then probably another year before it came out. It's really for people like you and me, where it's like, you film something and put it on Instagram. Or for me, like I record a class and put it on YouTube. Everything's so fast. So the publishing process was really mind-blowing to me. I was like, wait, what? It takes how long? And there's a beauty in that. That curbed your pitta, right? It, it, really, it really was. <laughs> I was like, wow, the pitta has to be patient. This is a good lesson. And to be honest, that's probably why I didn't write a book before because I just want instant gratification. So it's definitely been delayed gratification, which is why I'm so excited for it to finally be out there. And hopefully folks will get a lot from Well, it. congratulations. I think what you've done is a gift. It's really a gift for the world and certainly the yoga world and for anyone who has ever left feeling less than because they aren't consistent in their practice or don't know how to manage their own kind of emotional state. I think it's like a real self-help book, truly, because it's taking yoga, but it's expanding into different ways that can practically help people. And so congratulations. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. So where can people 
find information about purchasing your book. So hopefully you can put it in the show notes, but it's brettlarkin.com forward slash yoga life. We'll get them there. That's the name of the book is Yoga Life Habits, Poses, and Breathwork to Channel Joy Amidst the Chaos. So just over on my website, it's available on Amazon, Target, all the major retailers. And it's a great book to also gift to a friend. Like if you have a friend and you're like, I really want them to get into yoga, but they're not into yoga. I really wrote the book intending it to be for both people who love yoga and also those who are just curious. So definitely pick up another copy for a loved one or someone in your life that you think could benefit. What a great gift. Yes. Thank you so much for your time. And again, congratulations, Brett. I'm really proud of you and proud to call you my friend. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Redefining Movement. If you like what you've heard, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Feel free to leave us a rating and review or share with someone you know. Check us out at www.litmethod.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.